welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. And welcome to episode 88 of the Proper Mental Podcast with Dara Fleming, who is a writer, a poet, a mental health advocate and a public speaker. Dara started talking and writing about mental health after his own experiences with mental ill health. And he found that writing allowed him to process his thoughts and feelings in a positive way. And that led him to setting up the award-nominated blog, Thoughts Too Big. But the roots of Dara's own mental health struggles started during his childhood when his best friend died by suicide. And it was after he started to experience panic attacks that he decided to undergo therapy and start unpicking the grief around this tragic event. And that's kind of all the stuff we talk about in this episode. It was wonderful to spend some time with Dara. He's a really active member of the online mental health community. And we've been kind of Instagram buddies for some time, although we've never actually spoken in person. So when he logged on, it was like hanging out with an old friend. And that was lovely. And it allowed us to just fall straight into this really open conversation about all things mental health. And Dara talks about losing his childhood best friend to suicide. He talks about the impact that that had on his life at the time and the impact it continues to have till this day. He also talks about how all the grief and the feelings and the emotions that came with that played a big part in his own mental health struggle and what he did to get control of those emotions and feelings again. And we talk about writing We talk about creativity, we talk about traveling, being an introvert, getting triggered by social media, and we talk a lot about building good mental health routines, which is something Dara's very passionate about, and if you follow him on social media, you'd have heard him talk about a lot. It's a lovely, lovely conversation. Dara's written work is incredible. I really love his blog. He's got all sorts of stuff coming out at the moment, and his first work of nonfiction, Lonely Boy, is out at the end of the year. We talk about that. We also talk about loneliness, which I think is a massive part of the mental health conversation, particularly in men. So keep your eyes peeled for that as well. There's links to everything that he does in the episode notes. But if you want to catch him on social media at Dara Fleming or at Thoughts Too Big, you can also read the blogs at the Thoughts Too Big website, thoughtstoobig.ie. As ever, if you want to catch up with me, www.propermentalpodcast.com. That's probably the best way. Drop me an email through there, but you can follow me on social media at Proper Mental Podcast. I'm still chasing my 50 reviews. So if you've got two minutes, leave us a review on iTunes, would you? I've not had one for ages. It would be lovely if you could help me out and spread the word about this episode too. Screenshot it when you listen, tag me, tag Dara, help me spread the word. It really is appreciated. Now that all that's out of the way, this is episode 88 of the proper mental podcast with dara fleming thank you very much for listening enjoy So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Dara Fleming. How are you, mate? I'm good. I'm good, man. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good, mate. I'm good. Thank you for joining me, man. This feels a little um, a little overdue, if I'm being honest. A hundred percent. It's been a long time coming, so I'm delighted to finally be on because it's something I've... Every time I see an episode, I'm like, I really want to be on that podcast because I just love the <laughs> conversation. So glad to be here. 
Oh, mate, glad to have you. And I'm really, really, um, really, really looking forward to it. I suppose what I really wanted to start with, mate, is um, how are your legs feeling? Because you've just done a marathon, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was 10, 11 days ago at this point. So legs are doing fine now. A few niggles here and there, but um, I couldn't walk the day after. It was it was tough. It was <laughs> tough, but it was it was worth doing, especially I think for the mental aspect alone, uh, just because like the last 10 kilometers, last six miles, you really just, all you want to do is give up the entire time. So it's a nice kind of metaphor for mental health, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Something having to, uh, yeah, dig in sometimes. Right. And, and mm-hmm. keep, keep going. Yeah. Were you a runner anyway, mate? Um, only since the pandemic, I used to play basketball at uh, quite a high level here in Ireland. Um, and then the pandemic kind of cut short a few seasons. So just to stay fit, I started running but I always like historically hated it like very much hated running so it's funny now to have a marathon under the under the belt yeah yeah I mean with regards to mental health how did you find the process because it's when we talk about marathons right we focus on the the marathon distance but you've got to run a hell of a lot of miles to get up to that distance right the training is probably worse than the actual marathon itself you know and how did that affect your your headspace having to plod through those miles several times a week yeah i think the the most important thing for me uh, is that i had so my brother runs marathons a lot and he's an ultra runner so he was my coach and i think having someone to be accountable toward was really really helpful like if i went out on my own without a coach i probably would have just not done done the miles so i think having that accountability was really important but yeah like there's some days uh, where you just don't want to want to run in terms of like you might be hung over you might just not want want to bother and uh it's just having the you know it's that whole thing like you're not always going to be motivated but you do need to be disciplined i think that kind of that is a part of every facet of life and it was definitely with this where there was a lot of days i just didn't want to run and it was having that kind of discipline to stick with it was the most important thing yeah yeah very much so i think that's like that's a, a common side effect of exercise that we don't talk about enough is how mm. you can take what you learn when you're in your running shoes and apply it to other stuff. Right. So you might thought, ah, oh, I'll never be able to run a marathon. And now you have, and you can yeah. take that mindset. Right. And whether it's like a job or an opportunity or something comes up in your life and your first instinct is to say, I don't know if I can do that. Well, yeah. you know that you can do shit that you don't think you can do now. Right. So it's kind of like proving it to yourself over and over again. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, it 100% you've nailed it there it's like you can do anything it's just how badly do you want to do it um so for me I was like because I was only going to do a half marathon and then I decided to do the full and there was like halfway through training I was like am I going to do this or not and then once you kind of just make the decision to you kind of like pre-commit you're like I'm doing this and then no matter what happened after that point it was like I'm just going to get through this I may never run a marathon again but I was like, I've done one, at least I can say that. Yeah, tick the box, man. Yeah, it's a hell of a hell of a thing. Even though like so many, you know, thousands of people do them all over the world all the time, it's still a relatively small number when you compare it to like the global population. Do you know what I mean? It's still yeah, like a hell of yeah. a hell of a thing, man. Yeah, it's uh, it's really cool. Did you do it for charity? Yeah, so we raised, um, I think at the end, it was like 800 euro for um, U2 Suicide Prevention Ireland which is obviously something quite close to my own heart. So, um, and it's nice, like, because, you know, people just get behind it. You don't have to do a massive amount of, like, uh, you know, campaigning. You just, you know, I was just putting up my long runs and training, putting up the link, and people got behind it. So it was really cool. Oh, mate, that's awesome. Yeah, and I suppose, you know, that that 
world as we're going to talk about today that's kind of what you're known for really is your mm. uh, your advocacy and your writing in that space but what was your what was your route into the into the world of mental health mate um so yeah you probably noticed already but for your listeners um my best friend took his own life when i was 17 he was 18 um and that was my introduction to what mental health is like before that point in school or whatever mental health wasn't a word that was thrown around not as often as it is today you know um so my first introduction to it was what can happen when your mental health is very bad and you become very isolated and it can you know end up being fatal uh and then from there you know I was grieving Irby's loss for months and months and I thought that was kind of normal but it morphed into a kind of numbness and then into depression and you know I was looking around me and everyone else seemed to be kind of getting on with life and I couldn't really get on with it um and then you know the numbness kind of lasted for years because although I was numb it meant I wasn't feeling anything so I wasn't feeling sadness or happiness or anything in between so I was like well this isn't so bad because I'm not feeling sad I'm just not feeling anything so I was able to get on with it and I was able to you know function uh, and then that kind of all came to a point uh, when I was in second year college I was 20 years old I just had a, a kind of string of panic attacks and you know low moments and that um, that led me to realize that you know I hadn't been right for quite a long time so I kind of went and sought therapy in college and got back on track wow I mean it's like the the conversation around grief is something that really interests me you know because it's it's something we're all going to experience at some point in our lives right that's the human condition but we're we're not really told how to grieve and it sometimes seems to me that people who kind of manage to navigate grief like successfully for want of a better expression mm -hmm. it's more by accident than by actually knowing how to process those thoughts and those feelings and was that a case for you Dara that you know you kind of this this awful event and having to process it and not really knowing how or when or where or, or what to do with what had just happened yeah like um because everyone grieves differently you know there was like you know one event um and everyone will handle it differently you know my brother was as close to Irby as I was and he handled it very differently than I did um, but for me, like I was 17, so I was still quite young, didn't really know the world. And there was part of me, like I remember there was part of that time where I felt guilty if I didn't cry every day. Um, I was like, oh, well, I'm not honoring his death. If I'm not crying, it means I'm not upset about it. And, you know, I was kind of pressuring myself into feeling more remorse than I was or, you know, forcing out the tears. And I thought, you know, looking back, that was quite a toxic way to deal with grief. Um, but it's just what I thought at the time, especially because it was such a, you know, travesty of a death. Like it wasn't, you know, you know, natural causes are different. Like, uh, so when it's suicide, it feels a lot more intense. Uh, and then, yeah, it was just like trying to figure out. I know, um, again, I was 17. A lot of my teachers at the time, like told me that I changed and that I was a lot more like I'd become an adult quicker than I should have. And I just had to deal with a lot of like really adult themes at quite an early age and that changed me a lot so I think yeah the, the grief in a lot of ways forced me to grow up faster than I probably needed to because I remember before uh that happened there's a kind of like the before and after um I was just kind of happy-go-lucky very light and there was nothing too serious and then after the event I was like 
this is what life is like and this is what can happen to people. And that kind of changed how I, I suppose, interact with people. I became a lot more compassionate in ways because like, I realized that like this could happen to anyone because none of us knew he was depressed. Like he'd never, you know, uh, communicated that. So it, it made me very aware of the fact that this could be happening to anyone at any time. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I think it's just, I don't know, it's just so scary, isn't it? How these things can just come out of the out of the blue you know mm-hmm. it's just um yeah it's really really scary and you say then that you kind of you struggle to feel things feel emotions and i think that's a, a really important conversation because i think that's really common you know like mm-hmm. in modern life is built to distract us from these things and it's very easy to push stuff down and 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 to not feel it you know and um, yeah yeah it sounds like you did that for for quite a while maybe without realizing you were doing it does that make sense yeah like definitely for the first while I didn't realize it because I, you know, I was still caught in grief and I thought that was just, you know, par for the course, which it is to an extent. Uh, so I was like, oh, the emotions will start coming back. But as the years went on, I kind of realized that, you know, nothing was bringing me joy like it used to and nothing was, you know, I wasn't even getting angry or like sad or anything. And then it got to a point where I was so aware of it that I started kind of acting emotions. So like if, if I got some good news, I'd know the people around me would expect you know a positive reaction so i'd you know put it on i'd be like oh yeah yeah i'm delighted that's great but like not really actually feeling anything um and then once i started going to therapy and realized that i kind of i was talking to connor stone about this the other day actually um i had to start like so i'd get like a spark of an emotion so like if something happened that was really really like exciting and made me happy i'd get a little bit of it and I kind of had to coax that into a flame. So I'd have to sit with the emotion and be like, no, this is good. You're allowed to feel the happiness. You're allowed to enjoy this. And I had to do that every time I felt an emotion, be it like sadness, anger. I'd really have to coax it out and like sit in it. And eventually that got to a point where I started feeling the emotions kind of more naturally again. And they were at a point where, you know, I, I experienced them without having to put in that much like direct effort to feel them. I can feel them more now, but it was a lot of work in terms of like, okay, this is a good thing. You know, it's a good thing you need to, so you should be experiencing happiness. We're not experiencing happiness. So we need to like start working on that. Yeah, sure. Was that, um, was that scary? Because I think like something I've found from my own experience and um, kind of what you described there is very much like something I'm working on in my own therapy at the moment. And that kind of the, any sorts of feelings, whether they're positive or negative, um, mm. it's quite scary when you're not used to, feeling stuff right it's very um you know it's concerning yeah and i think i've only kind of realized how scary it was after the fact because now that i can feel the emotions better i've come to realize that like because we're an emotional creature like humans and social like to be alive is to feel emotion so in a lot of ways in that numbness you're not really living because you're not feeling the emotion but because you're not feeling emotion it doesn't feel like a big deal at the time because you're like, I can't register any of it anyway. It's only when you come out of it and you start feeling again, you're kind of like, I was just going through the motions for like three years of just to do an X, Y, and Z, going to college, going to training, going for drinks with the lads, but not really feeling anything, just, you know, very at a baseline. It's like the probably the, the antithesis to like stoicism where you're like, just not feeling anything at all rather than dealing with it and being level. So, um, but yeah, it's only after the fact where I was like, that is a terrifying place to be. And the most scary thing about it is it doesn't feel scary when you're in it. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because you've got no idea, like whatever mm. your normal is, it's very easy to assume that everyone is just like going through life the same yeah. way that you are, right? Yeah, it's something that I didn't realize as well till I started you're sort of doing a bit of this work is that you can't, you can't really separate your emotions, right? So if you're trying to like push down sadness, well, mm-hmm. a little bit of anger might get pushed down with that. And a little bit of something else might get pushed down with that. You can't like pick and choose what you feel, right? And you kind yeah. of end up, it's just like this murky water where some things are suppressed and some aren't, and you kind of don't know what feels like what and what means what, and it's, it's complicated, eh? And, um, and like what Sigmund Freud used to say is like, an unexpressed emotion doesn't go away. It just goes down and comes back like uglier later. Like, and that's definitely the case with me because although I wasn't feeling emotions, they were definitely there below the surface. And they came to a point, you know, like I had a huge panic attack on the street when I was 20 years old. And that was definitely a case as a result of like not dealing with emotion and them all kind of bubbling up at the same time and coming back in this kind of dramatic, awful way. So I think, you know, even if you're not feeling the emotions doesn't mean they're not there. And I think that's probably where the problems come from then, you know? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Something that um, my therapist said to me recently was that sometimes even the reason behind the emotion, um, it doesn't even really matter anymore. You know, sometimes that's just gone and forgotten about, but the still the emotion needs to be dealt with. And we kind of always think of like something happening, an emotion attached to it, feel it to deal with it. But yeah, yeah, as you were saying, the actual thing doesn't even matter, but that still needs to process in. And it's almost like waiting in a big queue to be (laughs) to be dealt with over the years. Yeah. Too many tabs open, like yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly it. Yeah. I think it's in one of the Mark Manson books and he talks about trying to push a um a beach ball under the water at the pool and you push mm. it down and it pops up somewhere yeah. else i think he talks about emotions like that I that's, a, love that's that. a very good uh, analogy for it yeah yeah, yeah. and it, so it sounds like therapy was um a big part in your route to kind of getting some control over this Dara. 100 percent. and i think um the biggest thing for me like therapy was really really helpful but i think the, the biggest weight came off my shoulders when i kind of admitted to myself and to my friends and to my family that there was a problem Cause, you know you're just kind of ignoring it for so long and i think the biggest sense of relief came when like i was like okay i'm signing up for therapy and i do need help and like telling my parents at the time was quite nerve-wracking because you know i was self-stigmatizing and i was worried that they might see me differently which was completely untrue like they couldn't have been more supportive but you know you, you do stigmatize it so once i could like admit to them and admit to myself that there was a problem and that we were going to get help i did feel a, a big sense of relief because although there was work to do i had decided to do the work and i think that's that's the hardest step i've always found is to admit to yourself that there is a problem because you don't want to you don't like seeing that in yourself i think like me anyway like it, it it can be quite difficult to admit that there's an issue because you just want everything to be fine yeah yeah very much so and sometimes like even when everything is really shit because you're used to that shit you can kind of sit in it mm-hmm. so i didn't want to say that i was poorly because once i said it i was gonna have yeah. to start dealing with it and i knew that that was going to be awful and although my life was not good at that time i was used to it so i was yeah. like well, well at least i know where i am at least i know i can sort of like just you know power my way through what i'm in now and hang on there and as yeah. soon as i say those words i'm gonna have to do something different and i'm fucking really scared of that you know and i think that's yeah, yeah i think the worst thing is is like the probably that the worst thing is like um if the thing you're dealing with is tolerable because if you're able to put up with it you're just gonna keep kicking the candy in the road like so it's almost like 
not that you'd want that, but if it, if it became intolerable, which, you know, it does, I suppose, at the point when you decide to look for help, um, it becomes easier to, like, start working on it because you, you can no longer live with it. But it's that it's those years of I can put up with this is the is the hard part. Yeah, it's incredible. And you get used to it. Right. So you yeah. kind of like it just becomes a part of you. And you think, well, no one's realized. So I'm obviously doing a great job of, of hiding yeah. it. You know, it's like when someone says, I never knew you were real. And you go, well, that's the fucking point. Like, yeah, you yeah, know, I was yeah. really good at pretending everything was was okay. But we, as humans, we're uh, that type of resilience. We we can just put up with stuff, you know? And I think that's, that's a huge part of the conversation is whenever a lot of times when we see mental health represented, whether it's on like telly. So on like EastEnders, it's always someone like crying on the edge of a block of flats going to jump off or mm -hmm. a classic Instagram picture of it's black and white. And the guy's got his head in his hands and screaming into space. And for a lot of people, it's not like that. You know, I was going to work. I was being a dad, you know, I was kind of like, yeah. I was just kind of getting, getting by and we can get by for a long time before the wheels come off. Hey. Eh? Yeah. Like it is a very um, Hollywood idea of, mental health problems and mental illness where it's like a lot of it is like like the trope for me should be like you like you rarely know when someone's struggling like um and there's that there's a pattern that i've seen emerge is that like people who are suicidal for example don't tell people and then the the ones who are like seeking help often tell you they are suicidal it's like i'm feeling suicidal and it's like it's not that you're not suicidal but like the fact that you're telling me means you don't want to die, you just need help. And it's the people who are really, really struggling don't tell anyone and they just go and do it. And that's that's where it's the, the scary part because it's not obvious. It's, ne it's not the, oh, he's obviously down in the dumps. He's living in black and white and his hood's up. Like, he's the sad guy. Like, the sad guy is often the most happy guy or the most happy girl. You're the most outgoing They're the, like because they're just trying to mask themselves. So, like, it's really tricky to know when someone's actually struggling, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. I suppose that's what we need to think about having these conversations, isn't it? It's like how to reach that person because I know like, you know, I can make a, a post and put it on Instagram and tag you in it and you know, it'll get shared and it'll get liked, but it's all people like kind of me and you who have a basic level of understanding and operate in this world. And, you know, we can all sort of like pass this stuff in amongst, you know, each other, Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, how do you get it? into the ears of the sad guy, you know, the one who's, yeah. you know, the one who's, um, who's kind of drowning quietly and isn't telling anyone. That's the big challenge, I suppose, of the mental health awareness conversation. And I think, well, I suppose like, and you've probably have um, experience of this as well for what you do, but because you're making a space um, where you talk very openly about mental health and your own mental health experience, I think that uh, alerts people to the fact that you're open to having that conversation. Like you're open to, you know, you're not going to shy away if someone comes to you and is like, I don't feel great. Here's what's going on. Not that we're mental health professionals, like we're not psychologists, but if someone wanted to talk to me, I think they know that I'm a place they can go. And I think it'll be the same for you. And I think that's probably the most effective thing you can do as someone who isn't a qualified professional is to, you know, put up a beacon, like a Batman beacon in the sky being like, I, this is a place you can come to talk if you need to talk mightn't be able to solve your problems but we'll get you pointed in the right direction and we'll get you because i've gotten a lot of dms over the years to that vein where it's like i'm not feeling great you know what i should do and i'm like hey well done for reaching out as i said as i say often i'm not a mental health professional but let's chat let's see if we have resources i know a lot of resources in ireland and in the uk that you can turn to and you know 
I think all, all people really want at the end of the day is to be listened to like yeah very much so to have that that safe space you know that environment to uh to open up yeah very mm. much so did you find that people getting in touch with you that kind of started to happen when you started writing about this stuff how were you writing about anything before mental health or is this kind of the start of your writing career um yeah like so the blog started in 2015 um and it was originally called thoughts too big for twitter because i couldn't write long enough on twitter because they only had like 140 characters or something um and initially it was just whatever i thought about writing went up so it wasn't just mental health a lot of it was mental health but it was other stuff as well and then i suppose in the last four or five years i kind of made it specific to mental health and made it more structured and more of a kind of organization rather than just like a fell on his own and since then because it's so niche down to mental health i think that's when people started reaching out because it became that kind of space where people could look if they were they were struggling because like my my content is very much based in like i felt like this before this is how i felt this is what i did to to fix it might work for everyone but it's just openly talking about like i feel shit today or feel anxious today and i think that allows people to like know this is a place you can talk about that kind of thing yeah yeah definitely does it uh, do you have to think a little bit differently about what and how you write knowing that people are going to read it and you don't know what's going on in their headspace so i'm very conscious about what i say on this podcast because i don't know who's listening you know and i'm yeah. going to assume that people who are listening some of them are uh, most people are going to have an interest in mental health and mm-hmm. most people but you know they've not everyone is in a you know position of recovery is like far along on that route you know so it's um, yeah. it's a, a tricky line to walk sometimes i feel yeah i think i i kind of developed a rule of thumb over the last few years and it's quite simple but it's never say something that isn't true and never try to offend some or offend someone on purpose and if you kind of just have those two rules the whole time uh, and you're being honest and you're just reflecting i think that like people can see that quite easily and especially in the in video content it's even easier but uh those are my two rules of thumb for like talking about anything with mental health because you're not trying to rail people up it should never be that you're trying to help someone and i think that when you're doing that right it's quite obvious yeah very much so that's um that's such a you could apply that to everything right to mm. just like living life it's just oh, like, yeah, a, like a really apply nice it to sending out tweets as well like whatever it is you know just be honest yeah. don't try to offend anyone on purpose and life will probably be uh probably be all right yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> how how's the is the creative process of like putting words down is that good for your mental health dara does that kind of help you day to day yeah like a hundred percent um so as you know i'm a writer of a few books out uh that only like the creative writing part so like i kind of split the the blog and creative writing in the middle because although there is creativity with the blog it is more based in fact um so i started doing creative writing properly when i was like 23 which is almost five years ago now um just kind of short stories and poems um and i've been lucky enough to have uh, some of that work published uh and it's just yeah it's always writing has always been a part of my process where be it journaling like if i'm not feeling well i'll i'll write stuff down or you know because like there's a lot of stuff that if you just think about it your brain will hide stuff on you but if you make the actual effort to write stuff down you'll be more likely to get to the root of what the issue is Uh, that's what i've always found anyway and then you know 
creative writing allows me to get into a state of flow, which is always really good for mental health because um, it just takes you away from yourself and you're not caught in your own head. And that's kind of what meditation does as well. Um, so like that type of writing has always been really, really important to me. Yeah, very much so. Is that included in like um, in your routine? Because something you talk a lot about is the mental health routines. Mm-hmm. Um, is that so, is that like a non-negotiable for you to have some sort of writing or creativity as part of your your day to day? Yeah, like definitely creativity. Like some some days you can't write, but you can still be creative with different things. Um, like you know, some days I mightn't be up to writing a poem or up to writing a story, but I might make a video that might help people, and that's a way of being creative as well um but as much as i can like i do try to write something every day be that like just a quick journal entry or a small verse of a poem and it just it makes me feel a bit more like relaxed and like oh i did something that i enjoy doing today and that's that's really really important for me yeah it's like having a big mental sort out isn't it it's like going through your i don't know going through your cupboard and organizing stuff or you know cleaning Mm -hmm. out that drawer in the kitchen that's full of crap it's a bit like doing that but in yeah, it's head, the same like with a to do list. You know, if you like write a to do list and tick stuff off, you're like, oh, that felt that felt very very satisfying. Yeah, and it's really interesting to me as well that you mentioned being able to when you write it down, kind of like get deeper into stuff. Because, mm-hmm. like you say, if you sit and think about things, well, you have that thought, and then you kind of write, well, that's as far as I can go with it. But when you're yeah. writing down, you can always, you know, always go deeper, one step deeper, one step deeper, and like sometimes, yeah, you just unearth something that's a bit like, wow, I didn't even know that. I've been thinking this and, but yeah. here it is. And I clearly have been right. Yeah. I think it's because you can't hold all the information in your short term memory. So if you write it down, like you write down the first sentence, like I no longer have to remember that. So now I can go like a step further and a step further. And I think that allows you to get deeper into it. And also like, I always think of it like if I'm having like anxiety or like be anxious about something, it's this big vague thing above my head, like a big cloud. But if I write it down, it becomes this little like quantifiable block of text. And that becomes more manageable because I'm like, oh, this big thing was, you know, freaking me out and I'm very anxious. And then it becomes three lines of text. I'm like, that's actually not that big. I can deal with that. Yeah. It makes it so much more controllable, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, amazing. And, uh, you know, I, I mentioned your um, mental health routines before. Um, mm-hmm. Let's chat about that, mate, because I think that's a, a, a wonderful thing. How did you start to um, explore and work out your own, your own routine? You know, what, what is this, this concept that you have? Yeah, I think that came a lot in the pandemic, um, in the lockdown, because like for my whole life, there's always been an emphasis put on like physical health and physical health routines. We all know what we need to do for our physical health in terms of like, you know, exercising and going to the doctor if you need to and eating right and taking your vitamins. But there was never an emphasis placed on mental health in that same kind of aspect. So over lockdown, I was like, okay. I have time now and also I'm probably getting a bit more overwhelmed because I'm spending more time online and I'm, I'm do, I am feeling more anxious. So I was like, I need to like do the things that help my mental health more often. So then I just like started kind of writing down like, okay, so what, what helps my mental health? Okay. So when I'm well rested, I'm less anxious. So sleep helps my mental health. Same with drinking water, same with eating right, same with seeing my friends, same with exercising. And I, all of a sudden I had this list of things. I was like, I can do that every day. I can do that every day. I don't need to see friends every day, but I can see them two or three times a week. Writing helps me. So I'll try to do that. Meditating. And I had a list and I was like, okay, I'll try and, you know, start doing these things every day. And what I found is like, you just have a way more consistent level of well being once you hit all those things. And it doesn't become like, I think the probably the, 
the problem it could become is that if you start putting yourself under pressure to hit all those things every day, so you don't have to hit them all every day, but you have a a kind of set of a list of things that when your mental health is getting poorly, you know these things work. So you yeah. know, like for me, I know if I'm getting anxious, I know okay, if I go out for a run, I know I'll feel better. And it's the having those kind of it's like a toolkit for like when things start going downhill, I know how to get back uphill. Yeah, it's a lovely way to put it. Cause I think that whenever so from my own experience, if ever I have a bit of a bit of a blip, you know, a bit of a bad day, if I'm honest with myself and I look back into the weeks building up to it, mm-hmm. you, you know, I'm usually either not doing something I should be or doing too much of something I shouldn't be. You know, <laughs> like this, like there is there's usually clues, right? And I think yeah. when we don't know what mental health is, when we don't know that your mental health can just collapse and give out on you. Yeah. It can be like, it can feel like this thing that just happens, you know? So you're like walking down a high street and you have that big panic attack and it feels like it's come out of nowhere. Yeah. But then when you kind of like examine why it happened, it makes a lot more logical sense, right? 100%. It, yeah. These things, these stepping stones, I suppose, to mental wellness are really, really important. Eh? Yeah. Because like, I think, I suppose it's just because the way we conceptualize mental health, like to stay in like physical good shape, like to stay like, you know, healthy, you have to do stuff every day. Like you can't, you can't like not eat well, or you can't not exercise. And mental health is very much the same. Like you do have to work in it every day to maintain good mental health. It's not, it's not something you just work on when it gets bad. Like you like, and it might feel redundant to work on it when you have good mental health. Like, like, why am I doing all this stuff? And my mental health's fine, but it's like, yeah, but if you stop doing all this stuff, it's start, it's going to start going downhill. Uh, and also the caveat that I always put in because people do get a bit sensitive about this and I do make it as clear as possible, like mental health and mental illness are, are very different. And like a mental health routine isn't going to help fix a mental illness. You know, it's not the same thing. Like this, this is very much for people who might have meant like daily mental health struggles, but not necessarily have an illness that you can have responsibility and control over that aspect of your mental health. Yeah, sure. I suppose it's, you know, everyone's routine is going to look different. Everyone's going to have different things for them. And even if someone has got a, uh, you know, like a mental illness, like a, you know, an actual diagnosis, well, you know, these things are still going to, benefit you know like you know whether it's a physical activity or whether it's drinking more water i mean it doesn't matter what's going on as a human being you know keeping your h2o topped up is going to have a a, have a a, you know a beneficial effect but one of the therapists i I worked with over the years um he's really dyslexic and one of his sons is really dyslexic so in their house they have a lot of different systems and processes to be able to for them to kind of navigate the world with really severe dyslexia. And one of his sayings was, um, what's good for dyslexics is good for everybody. And there's so many things that I do now as part of my own mental health routine is stuff that he came up with to be able to do his job with dyslexia, you know, like putting certain things in to be able to slow life down and give him a chance to really like make sure he's, you know, got everything in front of him and all this sort of stuff. And um, that saying is always, stuck with me and whenever people can be a bit too quick to kind of like point the finger at that whole like mental health mental illness conversation and it's like well hang on we're not telling anyone what to do you know like there's very few down points to eating more vegetables and trying to get some sleep right yeah and i think like some people have a very um they come at you with the least charitable perspective like so 
Like I, I remember like a few months ago, right? I made a TikTok saying something like exercise is the best thing I do for my mental health. And then people came in the comments and they're like, well, people who have not everyone can exercise and you're a prick for saying that. And I was like, I'm not saying like, this is the only way to do mental, like to fix, to work with your mental health. I'm saying this is just a thing that works for me and it might work for someone else. I'm not saying it's exclusive. I'm not saying like, if you don't exercise, you won't have good mental health. And I think people just, especially in the age of social media, just want to be angry. And they like, I find anyway that some people, not everyone, most people are actually very, very lovely, but some people come at you with this very uncharitable take as if you're like, have bad intentions with the messaging. So I'll be like, this mental health routine works for your mental health. And people will be like, but you're excluding all these people. I'm like, no, like this just works. It's just a tip. Like, you know, I'm just trying to help. I'm just trying to help. That's it. Yeah. It's always, um, I suppose it, it comes down to like a, an, an awareness thing, right? So if ever I read something on social media and my immediate reaction is, you know, like, Oh, well that doesn't apply to this. Or I don't like that. Mm-hmm. I always try and turn it back on me. Like, why don't I like this? What is this telling me about me? Right. Because normally if you get triggered nine times, I mean, of course people are going to put, you know, I'm doing it now. I'm explaining myself, right. To keep everybody who's listening happy. But Yeah. yeah. um, yeah, But people are, you know, some people put awful things on social media and they shouldn't, but like you say, most people are kind of like decent people and they're just trying to help. And yeah, if something kind of really sets you off, it's worth asking why, why is this particular thing? got hold of me eh? i completely relate to that i have a sticky note next to my computer and it just all it says in it is why have i reacted this way because i found again during lockdowns and stuff that i might be irritable with people and i might be angry and something might annoy me online and i'm not i wasn't like like trying to figure out why i was annoyed and it usually has nothing to do with the thing that has annoyed me and i'm like oh I'm annoyed at that tweet because I didn't get accepted to that journal that I wanted to get accepted to last week. And now this person who has nothing to do with it has annoyed me. And like, that's not fair. And you have to really like look into it and be like, it has nothing to do with them, but you, you are just taking it out in them. Like, so whenever someone comes into my comment section, particularly on TikTok, like TikTok is wild. But uh, if they're coming in angry, like I understand now that like you're lashing out at me because you're not happy with something going on in your life. And I know how hard that can be. So I'm not going to like fuel the fire and argue with you in the comment section. Like that's not going to happen. Yeah, that's it. I mean, once you fire back, then it becomes a thing. And then, you know, you kind of got that investment in it then. Right. And then you, yeah. you know, you, you, you could potentially be arguing about something that neither of you care about. I don't know about you, but it makes me feel awful if it happens because it has happened over the years, like where you're like, you're stressed and you keep checking and you're like, you're just very, very like, up on edge and i'm like this is an awful way to exist and some people exist like that 24 7 yeah yeah i mean that's a really good point it does feel horrible doesn't it it does feel horrible constantly going back to the notifications and yeah because like i'm uh, like obviously i put my stuff myself out there because that's part of the gig like but i don't like being in conflict like i'm not trying to start arguments so when someone is like saying these awful things i'm like oh oh my god like i i didn't mean for this like i'm not i was just trying to like get people to drink more water like that's all i was doing <laughs> you yeah. know and the person writing them comments is probably really dehydrated and just needs to <laughs> yeah. have a glass of water and calm down and everyone will, <laughs> everyone will exactly. be happy yeah but you know it is the that's the thing with social media isn't it it's like the wild west it, um 
you know, mm. but there's nothing, there is no situation. There is, I do not think there would be one example in the history of social media where some sort of debate or argument or disagreement was solved in the Facebook comments. I've just no. never seen it happen that someone's like, you know, two people have gone at it for a bit and then one of them's gone, oh, do you know what? Right, yeah, definitely. I'm going to go and vote for that different political party. Yeah, now. Yeah. Well done, I've, you've persuaded me. Yeah, a change of mind has never happened on social media. Like, it's never. It'd be cool yeah. if it did, but um, yeah, it just doesn't happen, like, does it? No, and most of it doesn't really matter. You know, most of it really really doesn't matter but i think does it's it? just because of the way people interact with each other like i say this quite often like if you scream at someone and call them an idiot and belittle them like that isn't the way to get them to change their mind at all like you need to like calmly and rationally like say why you think or what you think and how you think it's a better way to look at the world that's the way to persuade someone not be like you're an idiot for thinking that this is right you're stupid you're etc and so it's just like that's i'm not going to change my mind out of spite now yeah, that's it. And for a lot of people like reading these comments, then um, we get the fear. And I always think like when it comes to the big conversations, you know, whether that's mental health, mental illness, race, gender, sexual identity, all these like big things. A lot of people are scared to speak up because they're scared of getting it wrong. Yeah. You should be able to get stuff wrong. You know, you should be able to kind of, you know, just say something and you don't like we treat social media so differently like there's so many things i've said in my life so many hundreds of them millions of them where i've like got stuff wrong and no one's ever like pulled me on it i've had to kind yeah, of figure out what they were wrong on my own. yeah that's it yeah. yeah but um you know it, 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 we're gonna scare people away from the conversation isn't it if you always think you're gonna say anything and just get battered for it well no one's gonna speak yeah and especially like well yeah like you can't really ask questions online like because like there's some stuff i don't understand i'm like why is this the case and how is that? And like, you can't even do that online, but you can definitely do it offline. And I think the reason it is, is because if we're having a conversation in real life and I say something that is wrong or, you know, is, you know, not correct, you'll just be like, hey, that's not the way to do it. You know, you should say it like this. And that's solved in, in seconds. But because online we write it down, we give more like value and like kind of weight to the written word but it's really just people kind of saying offhand things but they're just texting it out and because it's written it's like that's what he actually thinks and he believes that and that's true and that's that's him it's like no i was just thinking true stuff and i dig i got that wrong that was wrong yeah. and i think people just are very unforgiving when it's written down mm. yeah which is a which is a shame really you know it's a, yeah. a shame i had a conversation with a, an advocate called um chris young recently and mm -hmm. um he was saying that he doesn't care when people get the words wrong the language and you know he's got a, a label of um a borderline personality disorder mm -hmm. and he walked around the edge of the uk um you know just chatting to people about it basically yeah. and uh, he was saying oh, i don't care you know his book is called like tales of a wandering loon and <laughs> um and he says i don't care because if someone uses the word the words wrong and i call them on it straight away they're going to disengage from the conversation and if yeah. i want people to talk about it if i want to explore it if i want to get into it well then does it really matter if they're getting some words wrong once once we've engaged once we've got into it then they're probably on their own are going to go away and research how to talk about these things and what words to use and i, I love that point you know we can be a bit a bit sort of trigger happy on some of this stuff i think yeah 100 and i think like even if you take it down to a very base thing right so uh, my name is Dara, but usually it's spelled with two R's, but my name is spelled with one R. So often people get my name wrong because they spell it with two R's. And I don't immediately go, you actually spelled my name wrong in front of the whole room. Like, 
I'll be like, if I have a, like a name tag or something, I'll just come over to them quietly after and be like, actually, my name's just spelled differently. It's not a big deal, but I won't like call them out in front of everyone and be like, you spelt my name wrong. How dare you? Like, because that's up, just not ripping up the label in front then of Then they're going to be like, I don't want to talk to that guy. He's very, very intense. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's it. Yeah. yeah, very much so, man. Yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to, uh, to explore, isn't it? We spend so much time in that on that online world, but um, yeah, yeah, it's a strange, strange place. Strange, strange place. It yeah. Is. I mean, speaking of strange places, um, <laughs> I wanted to ask you about traveling because that's something that's um, very important to you as well. Mm-hmm. And something um, I've heard you talk about and I've seen you write about um, quite a lot is traveling solo. And the yeah. things that come along with that. And it was really interesting because I've also heard you describe yourself as an introvert. And, um, you know, that kind of sounded to me like a really interesting situation as someone traveling on their own and being forced to kind of interact more probably because you're on your own, but also yeah. being a naturally introverted person. And I just wanted to chat to you about some of your your travels and, and yeah, what that does for you kind of being out there on your own and, and doing this stuff. Yeah, no, it's, it's a really good question. Um, I think so for me, generally speaking i always have used well not always but recently use anxiety and things that make me uncomfortable as a compass so like i am naturally like i'm happy on my own but so things that make me uncomfortable is going out on my own and interacting with strangers and trying to make friends with them so that makes me uncomfortable because i'm like that's a lot of that's daunting so that's my compass i'm like that's the thing you're afraid of you have to go do that like that's and like, I don't want to run a marathon. Okay, I guess that's what I have to do now. It's that type of thing. Like I've always been like leaning because that's where you grow. Like that's where you grow the most as a person. So solo traveling, I think before I went the first time, really, really anxious about it, obviously, because I'm going out my own. I don't know anyone. It's going to be a loss, you know, whatever. All the fears that come with it. But as soon as I got to the airport and I would like, I got dropped off the airport and I was on my own. There was a kind of a sense of calm. And once I got over my first night away, it was fine because what you realize is when you're traveling on your own and you're staying in hostels, most people are traveling on their own and everyone wants to like not be on their own. So everyone's like open to like meet new people and engaging and learn about other people. And it's really, really eye opening and you learn a lot about different perspectives and you become kind of more compassionate. And it just really helped me to like get out of my own way because it, it was like, you know, for a lot of my life, it was like, oh, well, I'm not going to do these new experiences because they're difficult. But every time I've done something difficult, I've come away from it being like, I'm so glad I did that. Be that travel on my own, public speaking, podcasts, whatever it is, anything that makes me anxious. I'm like, every time I've done it, I've like been very glad I've done it. Yeah. I love the idea of using those feelings as a compass. I've never heard it described like that before. And I think that's, yeah. That's wonderful. What's that saying? It's like the answers lie in the work you're avoiding or something like yeah, that. They say, don't yeah. they? But yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's not a new idea, but that's the, the uh, metaphor I've always really loved is that anytime, like, you know, if I have a choice to like do the thing that makes me comfortable or do this new thing that makes me uncomfortable when I was younger, it would have been like, well, yeah, we'll just go home and watch Netflix. That's easy. But now I'm just like, no, I'll go to that event and I'll talk at it, even though it makes me really nervous. And then, when I come away from it, I'm like, I'm so, so happy I did that. Like, I feel I've grown as a person, you know, it's helped me to conquer fear of public speaking. It's got my name out there, all the benefits of it. And the only thing that's kind of stopping you from doing that stuff is that like giving into that anxious voice. And I'm just like, that anxious voice is actually pointing me in the direction I need to go. 
Yeah, is that like a, a proving it wrong thing? Proving the voice wrong? Yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah. And and how do you find um, public speaking? You seem to be on a bit of a roll with that at the moment, mate, on your on your socials. Yeah, um, these things just, you know, as, as things go on and, um, you know, more podcast appearances and the books are coming out, people are kind of more, and especially we're in a realm now where people are more keen on mental health talks anyway. Um, I really enjoy it, like, because I think, what's nice about it is you know people aren't going in with an expectation and I'm not the type I'm not like a college lecturer giving you like a PowerPoint presentation like I'm just talking about hey this is what happened to me this is what like the mental health routines that work for me you're just talking to people at their level rather than down to them and I think it's just really refreshing and it gives you it, it allows you to kind of consolidate what you actually think about stuff because you're like okay I know I put all this content in line but like what is the actual like the focused view like what am i actually trying to say to people and that really helps me to like figure that out yeah yeah definitely do you ever like sit back and kind of reflect on this whole mental health journey because obviously it all came about because of the the death of your friend Mm -hmm. um and that sort of one decision that he made has just changed the path of your life as well right and you know you're doing public speaking and you know, like working with different organizations and doing all this stuff you're doing. And it's come from all one, one event that, you know, mm-hmm. shouldn't have happened. And I, I just, I don't know. It just, um, it just popped into my head there that that's like, that's a lot, man. Right. That's heavy. Yeah. It is. I do think about it a lot because obviously I'd love to have Irby back and my whole life would probably be different. I probably wouldn't have started writing. I'm not sure if mental health would have ever become as important to me. So there was a lot of, it's weird, like, there's a lot of my life now that I'm grateful for that came out of an absolute traumatic life event, you know? So it's a really kind of weird space to, like, am I supposed to be grateful for it? Am I not? But, like, at the end of the day, I traded all to have him back, but that doesn't mean that I'm not, like, it, it's nice to look back and be like, there was a time in my life where that's, it looked like his death was going to kind of destroy my life. Like it was just going to wreak havoc. And I got to a point where I was able to find something in that as like a teachable moment and try and help people. And it was like, like the, 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 I suppose the genesis of thoughts too big and what I'm doing now has always been, I don't want people to die by suicide and I don't want people to have to bury their best friends that's that's always been the the motivation um and that's that's just what i've been trying to do and the path formed the way it did and that's how i've got to where i am now but that that's still the motivation like that's all i really care about and obviously like you know i make a living with mental health now which is you know a dream for me because it allows me to do that on a more like structured and regular basis and make more of an impact. And that's really, really important for me, but I do it for free. Anyway, I have been doing it for free. I'll always do it for free. So it's, it's a, it's a weird thing because, you know, I want them here. And also the fact that he's gone is the reason I am where I am. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a really beautiful way that you just put it Dara. And um, it like really empowering thing that I took from that as well is that like when these tragedies happen, they are going to define our lives, mm-hmm. but you get to have some say in that. So you yeah. get to def- define, you get to decide how it this def- um, defines your life. Right. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I like I and I like maybe that wasn't a conscious decision. Um, the conscious decision was probably to keep going and to not, like I remember I, I I in the book that's coming out in November I actually I make this point in the book that I made a promise to myself after he died that like no matter how hard things ever got for me that I wasn't going to go out the same way like I wasn't going to take my own life um, because I just knew the kind of destruction it causes. Um, and what it what it did to my mental health so like that was the conscious decision to and I guess that was me choosing how to let it affect my life I was like even if things get really bad I'm not I'm not doing that um so and I guess that decision has then morphed into like help other people and you know do the mental health stuff yeah yeah definitely the book you mentioned then was that lonely boy Darrow is that, yeah um the one that's coming up what is that is that more poetry is that more writing what is what's this uh, one yeah about? lonely boy is a non-fiction mental health book so it's essentially um starts with Irby's death and kind of comes all the way up to present and it's just it started as a journal really um and it's just me kind of it's a book of essays of like me dealing with different mental health things in my life and how I dealt with them and what I learned about myself and like why relationships in particular for me have always failed because, you know, I was emotionally unavailable and I was depressed and I was afraid of being abandoned. And there was a lot of stuff going on that I never really dealt with. Um, so I wrote this book in 2020 and 21. Um, and it's weird. Cause like, again, the, the genesis of the book or the premise of the book was that I got really lonely because Irby died. But what I learned about myself as I wrote the book was that I've actually always kind of been predispositioned to being alone, like being introverted, being alone, being lonely. And Irby's dead exasperated the issue, but it didn't like cause it. And but in my head the whole time, I was like, that's the reason kind of putting the blame on that. But it was really just because I wasn't dealing with the fact that that's how I am naturally. And that has caused like a ripple effect in like messing with relationships and you know yeah just mental health stuff in general so that's kind of what the book's about it's it's a basically like me figuring out my own shit <laughs> via, <laughs> via writing i guess yeah is that the concept of loneliness is that really interests me really really interesting because we sometimes don't realize that we're lonely that's something i've experienced before you know i've been through times because um, for my day job, I work with clients. A lot of these clients have worked with me for a long, long time. And through this process, because uh, we're dealing with like physical pain, um, mm-hmm. we get to know each other and we get to talk and we get to bond and we, you know, become really good friends. And I, for a long time, I didn't have other things going on in my life, but I kind of got a like a surface level of friendship and attachment through my client base. Yeah. And then but my mental health was still not doing very well and like kind of exploring it uh, in therapy. And it was like, well, hang on. A lot of the people I call my friends, although they are my friends, they're still paying me for my time. Yeah. You know, yeah. they're still coming to me to fulfill a role. It's not the same as much as I like talking to them and spending time with them and, you know, catching up yeah. with them and all the rest of it. It's not the same thing. And no. sometimes we can be really, really lonely and not, realize it right absolutely like and i think like there is so like i have a predisposition to being alone like as an introvert but that doesn't always manifest as loneliness you know there's loneliness there's solitude there's just being alone with your thoughts all of it is helpful at times like there's been times in my life where loneliness has made me realize that i needed to change something so that's that's important like the same for you like you probably realized when you were feeling lonely that 
I need to stop just relying on clients for the social interactions. So that that is helpful. Uh, but like, you know, aloneness doesn't always have to be this negative thing. So like I I think alone time is essential to a degree for mental health. Like you do need to sit alone and reflect and be comfortable with yourself. Cause a lot of people I know, and even when things get rough for me, like I know things are bad if I can't be alone in the house without like playing a podcast or playing music. If I can't just sit in my own thoughts, I'm like, okay, we're probably not in the best mental health place right now. And I know a lot of people who can't just sit and be alone, um, which is kind of a reflection on the world we're living in at the moment. But yeah, I just think it's important to be able to do that. Yeah, that's interesting, eh? Because we always talk on the talk about the introverts' inability to be part of bigger groups, but we never talk about the extroverts' inability to be alone, right? Yeah, because society is really like rewards extroverts and really thinks of that as a positive, as a positive thing and a positive way of being. But yeah, you're completely yeah. right. If you can't be in that quiet space, if you have to be surrounded by other people all the time, mm-hmm. well, you you could could well be. I don't. I'm not. You know, it sounds as if I'm kind of like diagnosing like <laughs> all the extroverts listening. But um, but yeah, there is a good chance that, you know, there's a reason for that as well. Eh? Yeah. And I feel like if you don't spend time alone, you don't really get to know yourself. And that's why, again, traveling alone, although you're not always on your own, like it is a really good way to figure out who you are because you figure out very quickly what makes you comfortable and what makes you uncomfortable and what's hard and what's difficult and how you think about different things. And I think being alone is essential to figuring that out. And that's what a lot of lonely boys about is like me figuring out who exactly I am and what exactly I wanted out of life. Because I was just, again, for years coasting through feeling really numb and being happy enough to do that until a point where I was like, what exactly is it that I want? Because, you know, all my friends were in careers they loved or in relationships that were really fulfilling or, you know, living where they wanted. And I was like, I'm not really satisfied with X, Y, and Z in my life. And I need to figure that out. And that's kind of where Lonely Boy came from. Yeah. Was that kind of a strange process going back through these old essays and journals and, you know, cause whenever we write something or record something or it's almost, it's kind of like a, a photo, isn't it? it, it mm-hmm. You know, you can go back, you can read your words and go back to where you were on the day that you wrote it, you know, it's, um, it's yeah. it can be a powerful thing. Hey, going back through the, the history books. Especially. Yeah. Cause you, um, you can see how much you've grown because I, I think for me, if I cringe at something I've written in the past, I'm like, okay, I've gotten better at writing. I think because like, I got wouldn't write this now. But, uh, yeah. And it's really, it's really nice to be able to do that and see how far you've come, but it like, and I, I don't want to like, give people this idea like everyone should do this but it's really easy and it just is positive like it is hard and it's painful because i had to i had to dig up a lot of stuff that was painful and uncomfortable and things i didn't like about myself um that was hard yeah it's a it's something that's maybe not talked about enough as you know i mean it's called doing the work for a reason right and you know work can can suck but yeah these things are hard that a big mistake i went the first time i went to therapy i kind of thought i'd go and we'll just have a chat and just you know just potter along and everything will be fine i'll be healed you know and i did nothing Mm. i did nothing else i just went there and talked and sometimes it was like really mundane just like moaning about stuff and yeah. Uh, yeah, strangely enough, nothing changed. It was only when I kind of, you know, you make that conscious decision to to commit to doing the hard stuff. And, um, yeah, you know, it's hard, isn't it? Yeah, it's really, really hard. I think hard. like because the age we live in where everything's instant, instant gratification, we have this idea that 
mental health stuff can be the same where you can just like go to therapy and it'll be fixed but like for most of our history like we've got our information very slowly like by reading by word of mouth because we didn't have books and like the work has always been quite slow and getting new bits of information has just taken ages and that's how our brains work like it doesn't you can't just fix it like you can take a pill and fix it instantaneously but not permanently uh so the work is like consistent day in day out until you get to a point where you're like and then what i think for me like it never felt like i'd gotten better until i looked back and i was like when i wrote that i was absolutely depressed and now i don't feel like that and and that's when i was like oh i, I actually have improved mentally mm, there's a lot to be said for that hey? like just taking a minute to sort of pat yourself on the back and say look what i've been through look what happened look how far I've come. And you can do that regardless of where you want to be or whether, you know, you're where you think you should be. But I don't think we ever do it. We're always like focused on getting to the end of this recovery and jumping back into modern life and like, yeah, I'm well again, let's crack on. But yeah, I think it's important eh, to just kind of look back and go, fucking hell, man, that was heavy and I did it. Yeah. And I think it might be all right. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And like, that's like, that's the perfect, like, example of why you think the marathon is like a really good metaphor for it because you're like you know very very few people run a marathon and don't struggle there are people but there's some people just breeze through it the majority of people do a marathon and for a significant portion of it they do not feel good and they want to give up uh and that's what mental health is you know like most people are going to struggle at some point and then when you get to the end you're like i did that like I, I got over the mental health thing. Like I really put in the work. I didn't give up myself and I got through it. And I think that's a really powerful image. I think it is, mate. I think it is very much so. And it's, uh, I'm going to leave it on that image. Nice. And uh, yeah, but mate, thank you so much to, for coming on today, man. It was lovely to meet you. And um, when, as soon as you logged on, I was like, right, I need to get hitting recording quick because I got a feeling as soon as we start, we're going to go and I don't yeah, want to miss yeah. any of it. Right. So I'm going <laughs> to jump straight on, but it was absolute pleasure, mate. It's been lovely. Yeah, no, thank thanks you so, so much for having me on Tom. I, as I said, big fan of the podcast. So I'm honored to be on. Oh mate. Thank you. Thank you very much. When's that book out, man? Uh, November 10th. So it'll cool. be presumably everywhere. That's someone else's problem, but it'll be, it'll be everywhere on November 10th. Oh, mate. Well, I'll put all the links to the, to the blog, which is awesome, by the way, and to all the other things that you do. I'll put it all in the episode notes. If anyone wants to catch up with you and um, keep an eye out in November, then um, that's the way to do it. Mate, thank you so much. That's been an absolute pleasure. Cheers, man. Likewise, mate. Thanks. proper mental podcast please like and subscribe the space time